Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. And I want to begin by noting that I see something in this passage specifically set up in this short sermon series as a providential bit of good and great encouragement. I see God at work by orchestrating this text to happen at this time. And here's why. Because as we move to the other end of the bookend of the Bible, what we see are two things. The first is we see a description of the holy city not made with hands. We see the culmination of our gospel hope, a hope that rests in a place Our eternal home, that is. Our eternal home with God in perfect communion with him forever. But second, we also are given words of encouragement, of exhortation, of charge, and a threefold charge, if you will, that we'll we'll see in a minute that will help us in the now. You often hear me say that, and I'll say it again. That fits here. What we see here is a bit of both of the, the not yet of the kingdom in the heavenly home that we're journeying towards, and the now of the kingdom that we need to be reminded of. And that reminds us of something else that's central, and that is that in the here and now, we're sojourners. We don't have a permanent home. So uh, whether we stay here or we go to somewhere else or we go to somewhere else after that, that's what we do in this world. The church are sojourners because our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we are seeking. Paul tells us it this way. He says that we, we are, uh, the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he encourages us to remember that every affliction that comes our way in the now of the kingdom of the light and momentary afflictions, and they're preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, as he describes it. That the sufferings of this age cannot be compared to the glory to come, and as a result, we are to set our hearts on the things above, not on the things of this world. Now, I know that that can be difficult, but I hope that you get a sense of the deep excitement that both Julie and I feel as we begin this transition. And so what I want to do is I want to end my words of this announcement with you by turning your attention to God's final words for you, his church, which is what we are providentially doing, and we want to keep in mind that that's what's before us to do. So let's do what I do to get that, and we all know that I love some good context. No? Okay, so remember in the series we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 because uh, the elders are here. I have to confess I made a mistake. I forgot the open week, and so I started this series a week early. I was like, Oops, okay. So we just did Genesis 2 which is the perfect other part of the first bookend. And what do we do? We looked at God and humanity in perfect communion in the garden that I talked about as being more like a garden temple. Uh, We see a little bit of that imagery in the third mill class that we're taking. Elder Sal is a part of that, so he knows what that looks like. And so is his wife. Oh, I I forgot. It's it's Mildred and Mildred's husband. That's (laughs) it. I forgot. So we looked at that. That's what we looked at in week one, God's community, uh, God's communion with his people. And then what happens in Genesis 3, that communion is destroyed by sin, and they're exiled out of the garden temple. And what we get in Genesis 4, 
through Revelation 21 is God's remedying that sin problem so as to again have perfect communion with His people. Now that's a really, really big picture, of course, right? That's the 30,000 foot view if there ever was one of the Bible, but there it is. And that takes us to Revelation 22. Perfect communion restored. Here's the thing I want you to see, though, and to ask. Well, where? Where is that perfect communion restored? That's what we said. In the New Jerusalem, described, actually starting in Revelation 21, 9, and taking us to Revelation 22, 5. That's where we see this described. So Revelation 22 actually jumps into the middle of the description, so it starts a little bit earlier. So that's what we see in the first part. And then in the last part, the last words that God gives to his people, these closing exhortations, these words of encouragement that uh, we're going to take a look at now. And so what I want to do is, is I want to just read bits and pieces of that here and just walk through this really uh, simply, and then we'll close our time. So here's one of the things we see. We'll just give you a map of these two sections. So the first section is the description of the, of the heavenly temple, the, the not yet of the kingdom, the, our eternal home and our role in that home. And then the next words are for our time here and now. So here's a couple of things we want to see. The angel is showing John these things, and that's what the whole book of Revelation is about, the angel is showing these things to John. And he says, he shows John the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's exactly what verse 9 says of, 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 of chapter 21. That's what he shows him. Now here's the interesting thing. What does that bride, the wife of the lamb, look like? Well, it turns out it's the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Well, which is it? Is it the bride or is it the holy city? And the answer is... Yes, <laughs> right? It's both. That's the nature of apocalyptic literature. There, there's imagery here to consider. This is both, right? And we see that it's gate, it has gates with the names of the apostles of the Lamb, 12 of them. It's a measured city. The, the, the multiples of 12 here is perfection and completion, and so it's an exacting city of perfect perfections, absolute perfections. It has no temple. We've talked about that before. This is right out of the scriptures. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And by the way, what is the Lamb but Christ who is the head? And we are his body, and we have the indwelling spirit. We are the temple, right? So that imagery comes about there too. There's no need or sun or moon, for the glory of God gives its light. It has a river, the river of the water of light. Note, remember the garden has the river that splits into four rivers as it comes into the garden, and we see the garden again in Revelation 22 coming into the temple. It has the tree of life. Of course, that's the thread that you want to think about, that the tree of life, and we've talked about this before, the tree of life is guarded by the cherubim with the flaming sword when they're exiled out of the garden, and you don't get access to that again until you get to the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. But we get a hint of that with Jesus when he dies and says it is finished because the veil that's part of the temple has the cherubim stitched on it, and that veil is torn in two, thus saying that the work of Christ is beginning our pathway back to that perfect communion with God. And then lastly, we see the face of God and reign with him forever and ever. So let's just touch on a few of these interesting things and, and draw your attention to a few of them just to get a little sense of it. I'm not going to put them up on the screen, but listen to a couple of these words. This is, this is what we read starting in verse 20, uh, 9 of 21. Just a few of these verses. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, 
And that's an interesting thing to think about, right? Because you have this angel who's delivering the judgment of God and then says to John, now let me show you the good news <laughs> for you. So he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So we notice that there's reference to these precious stones. There was precious stones in the garden too. We know that when we get the garden description. Now we have precious stones here. Precious stones in the tabernacle and temple. Precious stones that the priests wore as well. Lots of this is intended imagery to connect us to that. One of the things we want to remember when we think about the book of Revelation is that 70% of the book of Revelation is made up of Old Testament illusion. 70% of the book is made up of Old Testament illusion. That's that's an important thing to think about. Don't think about what it means for the future. Think about John writing, drawing the rest of Scripture already given uh, to bear here at the end. It's got a great high wall and 12 gates with 12 angels, and on the the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel inscribed. It's it's perfectly uh, even, three, uh, three on the east gate, on the north gate, on the south gate, and the west gate. Foundations of them were on the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And we see that one spoke with him. He had a measuring rod. And so again, as I said, he measures the perfections of the city. It's not a literal measurement. 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits. But the idea is that these are numbers of perfection. We see more of the stones here. The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper and sapphire and agate and emerald and oxen and carlian, chrysalis, beryl, topaz, Christopheth, jacathin. Pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. I may not be. Pearl, I can pronounce that one. That's in there. But we have all of them. All of these beautiful and precious stones. And we see in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then we get chapter 22. The rest of the description of the not yet. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, another imagery that connects us to the garden. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river, the tree of life. So you have one tree that's on either side of the river. So keep in mind, there's imagery here. Twelve fruits yielding its fruit in the month. Uh, The leaves of the trees were the healings for the nations. No longer will there anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads it's an interesting thing to to pause on that and to highlight something remarkable about that statement to see the face of god is something that's central throughout scripture it's the culmination of our very existence if you think about how we communicate with people we love to see people face to face is that not the ultimate means of communion 
right? Now, we, we think it works for Zoom, and it kind of sort of does, but it's not the same, right? So if I talk to somebody or I hear somebody or I read a letter, I go, yeah, but what I really am looking for is face-to-face communion. But negatively, Scripture says what about God? No man sees the face of God and lives. So God has to purge us of that sin so that we're able to see the face of God and live for all eternity. This is the most profound privilege that we as image bearers, restored image bearers, sanctified image bearers get. This is the the culmination of what it is to have perfect communion with God, to be before him. This is what Moses had a taste of In the tabernacle, it was as if he was face-to-face with God, and that was so profound that when he left the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, he had to cover his face because the mere reflection of the glory of God was so profound that the Israelites could not look upon it. Just take a second to let that sink in. The mere reflection of the glory of God needed to be covered so that the Israelites could not look upon it. But in glory, we'll be able to look right into it because God dealt, dealt with all of our sin so that we could have perfect communion again. See, think about how mediated that communion must be, that Moses gets to see it, but you don't get to be there with Moses. And not only do you get to see what Moses sees, you don't even get to see the reflection of what Moses sees. You can't even look at that. i got to cover that as well. That's how devastating our sin is to our communion with God, but God restores that so that we will be able to see him face to face. That is profound gifting. That's that's the culmination of what we're here for. And then there'll be no night there anymore. There'll be no need of light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. So we get that again. And they will reign forever and ever. Now, I know it comes as a bit of of, uh, a shock to some of you, but Revelation is a bit of a controversial book. Maybe you've never heard that before. One of the things that makes it so controversial is because everybody debates about what the numbers in the book mean. Are they literal numbers? Are they figurative numbers? Uh, those who say it's literal call the, those people who see it as figurative as not taking the Bible literally, and back and forth it goes. And one of the central places where we argue the most about that is the millennium. Because boy, we love to argue about the millennium. The thousand years. By the way, it takes up ten whole verses in the whole book. And that's what we argue about. It's just ten verses. Here's the thing, for those of us in the figurative camp, and we see lots of numbers that have figurative meanings, right? Lots of numbers in the Bible. And they all mean completion, by the way. Every one of them does. Three means completion, connected to the Trinity. Four means completion, because you see things like the four ends of the earth, the corners of the earth, which, of course, doesn't have literal corners, but figurative corners, right? Seven means completion, because God created the earth in six days and rested, completed his work on the seventh day. Ten is completion as in the Ten Commandments. Twelve is completion as the twelve tribes and the twelve disciples, or apostles, excuse me. And so there's all this idea of completion over and over and over again. And so we would see the thousand years as a, as a figure or a metaphor for a really, really, really long time. Like the age that we're in since the time of Christ, which has literally been more than 2,000 two years. But thousand years is figuratively meaning a really, really long time. 
Here's the reason I'm pointing all that out to you. Because what Revelation doesn't do when it talks about our eternity is use a number to figuratively play, figure a really long time. That's actually forever and ever, just in case you didn't get it the first time, right? There'll be no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. You know what I'm going to ask for. Come on. Really? I know it's raining out. I mean, it's... That's the not yet of the kingdom. That's the joy and hope. That's the thing that helps us to recognize we're sojourners. We are going to move. It's going to happen. But not there. And not for a really long time, but forever and ever before the face of God. There you go. You're alert. See? They're getting it. And of course, we see that as wonderful and great encouragement. But that's not very practical for the now. And by the way, here's something interesting to think about. Um, I know I'm a sinner, so I have no right to do this. But if I could speculate for a moment, I would say Revelation 22.5 could be a really good place to end the Bible. If I were going to end it, like I could go, okay, I could make the case to just say that you're going to reign forever and ever in heaven before the face of God, period. Amen, right? But God doesn't see it that way. He says, I know you're in the now still, and you need words of encouragement now. And so you get 16 more verses before he's finished. And those 16 verses are what we want to talk about next. They're the now stuff. And three times... We're told in this now that Jesus is coming soon. I would argue that that is really a good way to see it as as the framework of these 16 verses. Three different times in 16 verses, I am coming soon. By the way, Revelation opens up with the declaration of, of, of God as described as the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. In other words, the second coming of Christ is central to the gospel. And so the hope of his coming is a hope that we have. That's what we have in the here and now, by the way. We have hope, that which is not fully realized in the gospel. In heaven, there'll be no hope because we will be fully satisfied forever and ever before the face of God with no mediation. There's no need for hope because I don't need to look for something better to come because I'm there. Right? But now we need hope. So three times Jesus builds these words of hope around the, uh, around the promise, the assurance, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. The first time we see that encourage of, of, assurance, uh, of assurance of blessing in keeping the words of this prophecy. We'll read that again, but just, we'll, let's just note that. The second time we see the warning of judgment and, and reward recompense is the language that the ESV uses. And the assurance that to one to come is also the eternal one. We'll take a minute to look at what I mean by that too. You'll see that in the text. And then finally, as Jesus' almost final word to us. We'll get to that as well. So let's take a look at these closing words 
We read, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. Here's the first one. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now again, I have it up here on the screen, but if you go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, this is how this opens. And by the way, keep in mind, this is a letter. One of the things that we did when we did the study was we take some time to talk about the fact that Revelation is a letter. It's a complicated book. It has uh, apocalyptic literature in it. It has prophetic literature in it, but it's wrapped up in a letter. The whole thing is a letter, not just the letters to the seven churches. The whole thing is a letter. We're going to see that as well. Um, But what I want to draw your attention to is verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who keep who hear and keep what is written in it. That's bookended at the end. Here you have a bookend within the bookend series. Here it is for you, right? The first, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. A blessing comes. A blessing comes not from just reading it aloud legalistically, but from upholding and keeping the word. We're evangelical Christians. That should be a no-brainer, right? I am blessed by upholding the word of God. Even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of trial, I am blessed by upholding the the word. And that, that blessing revolves around and is anchored in the certainty of Christ's return. I am coming soon. Persevere. Read, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And by the way, just keep that phrase in mind. I, John... Verse 8, because we're going to get something different later on in verse 16. But I want to just draw your attention. I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Connected to that first charge. And then there's a simple command. Worship God. Boy, it's easy to get enamored in the world, is it not? Drawn away by things that we think are worth our time and worth our worship. It's not like everything we see that's not worthy of worship has horns and a tail on it, right? They were easily deceived because the enemy knows how to do that. John, who is among the most faithful there is, is deceived. So if he can get deceived, so can you. Worship God. It's in a command form for a reason. Worship God, and you do it. How do you do it? Keep the word, (laughs) uphold the word, right? It's not a new formula here. It's grounded in that. That's the encouragement in the now. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, here is one of those many, many Old Testament illusions. When the prophet Daniel got his visions way back when, he was told to seal that up for that is not for until many days from now. And it's quite clear that John has Daniel in mind and that we're in a different age in the wake of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Spirit that brings us 
into the inauguration of the kingdom as we await its full consummation. We're in a different time than Daniel was. That truth was many, many days for Daniel. But now John says, no, that time is near. And so what you don't do is seal it up, that word that you're supposed to keep and bless. Guess what else you're supposed to do with it? Share it. (laughs) Right? Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. It's part of what we're charged to do. And why is that? This interesting verse 11 says it this way, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. It's essentially as if John is saying, we're going to do that with the open declaration of the word of God so that none will be with excuse. So none will be, be, no, everyone's without excuse. If you're going to be filthy and wicked, you're going to do it knowing the word. You're going to be without excuse. But for us who would strive after righteousness with humility and recognize that we're not there and strive after holiness with humility and recognize we're not there, we would be encouraged to do that. Here comes the second one. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me, there it is, to repay each one for what he has done. So there's judgment and reward in that. But then we read in connection to that, verse 13, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And, and you might think, I, I wonder if that's like a, an English translation. Like, so we give us the, the English translation of the Greek words alpha and omega, and then we say beginning and end. And, but no, in the, in the original language, all three times that's said. So John has an intent to drive home the idea that the one who is to come is also the one who has always been. And he is unchanging. Unchanging. By the way, God's immutability, his unchanging nature, is fundamentally good for us. Unlike all the gods of the world in Egypt and Babylon, all like all the gods that we have that are fickle, where we're going, I don't know what God's doing. He might be mad at me. I think maybe he is mad at me because you're thinking, I don't know the mood. But the God of Scriptures is unchanging. The same yesterday and today and forever, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning as well as the end. He exists before all things. He is eternal and he is unchanging. And that's an anchor, an assurance, a confidence for us. That we who are faithful will be rewarded for that. And justice will prevail against those who are unfaithful. Because God sees all things and he is eternal and he will bring about those things. There's a confidence to be that. And that confidence, again, rests in what promise? Behold, I am coming soon. The certainty of his second coming. That's the hope of the gospel that we have in the here and now. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. There's the tree of life again. Now you have the right to it because you've been purified, you've been sanctified, you've been made right. And a juxtaposition is drawn here. They may enter the city by the gates. By the way, this is a striking little thing to think about. Jesus speaks in the parables about no way can you get into the sheep pen. You can't even sneak in behind it. And this imagery is beautiful here. Because this says that those who belong to me, the imagery here is the robes washed, right, in the blood of Christ. You have the privilege not to sneak in from the back, 
but to walk through the gate. When you think about a city, who alone has authority to open the city gates? But the king. And the king says, open the gates. Come in. That's good stuff. This is the privilege that we have. That's associated with our citizenship in heaven. We belong to the kingdom. We're members and citizens of the kingdom. We enter the city by the gates. Here's the juxtaposition. Outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, but not inside. It's impenetrable, by the way, because the measurements that we saw earlier paint this perfect, impenetrable city. Then verse 16. I, Jesus. Remember I said... Keep in mind, verse 16, as we read verse 8, I, John, now we get I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things from the, for, the, for these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is interesting to me because there's places in the New Testament where the writers of the epistles will do something like, uh, I'm writing to you in my own large hand. So like the, the, the ancient writers, and we see this today too, uh, Paul, for example, would dictate his letter to a secretary. That's a practice in the modern world as well. But on occasion, Paul would go over and he'd sign his name to it, or he'd say a few things at the end on his own, with his own hand. And that's a little bit of that here too, which I find to be a profound encouragement. It's as if Jesus is saying, John's been my secretary, but right here at the end, I'm going to say it to you directly. That's good stuff right there. I, Jesus, I got something to say to you. I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And then he says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. Yeah, you guys are... uh... (laughs) I want you to think about that for a minute. It might make sense to you that you would get an extended invitation from the Spirit of God to come. But aren't we the bride? How does that work? Here's the thing that's interesting about that. The Spirit and the bride, that is, and the glorified bride, that is, the members of the body of Christ down through the ages that have been right where you and I are now in the not yet of the kingdom, but now are in the not yet of the kingdom. Excuse me, they're in the now. They were in the now, and now they're in the not yet, right? In other words, they were here and now in the struggle, in battle, in spiritual warfare, dealing with sin. They know exactly where you are, but they're purified. They're, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, the spirits made right gathered together. So that part of the bride is saying to you, oh, come. And here's an encouragement for you. If Jesus waits and you die and you go to heaven, you get to be among the the bride members who go along with the Spirit. Come. Because that's the ultimate end for us. And we get to extend the invitation to the people of God alongside the Spirit of God, the Spirit and the Bride. Say, come, and let the one who hears come. That's anyone who hears that invitation extended to them should come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
Reference to the minor prophets, by the way, you might remember that in our time there. That kind of language is there as well. Another one of the many uh, allusions to the Old Testament. But then comes a warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. What plagues are described in this book? The plagues of Egypt. This book is not just Revelation, but it's the whole of the Bible. But even in the book of Revelation, the plagues reference have all kinds of echoes to the plagues of Egypt. Again, more of the 70% of the allusions here. Because what happens in Egypt is a foreshadowing, a, a, a typological component to the eschatological truth of, 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 the, of the now and of the age to come. That's all the plagues that they're talking about. There it is. I will add in the plagues of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city that's just been described to us, the blessings of that, entering into the city, which is the temple, which is us, and partaking of the tree of life, which is a metaphorical way of saying eternal life. That's taken away. That's described in this book. He who testifies to these things, who is he? Verse 16, I, Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, one last time, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So I said to you, by the way, Revelation 21. Oh, I didn't put those up. Whoops. Oh, no, I did. Yeah, I said to you in Revelation 22, verse 5. That could be a good place to end the Bible, right? It's not. Don't take, don't take that home. It's a Pastor Tim said we don't need the last verses of the Bible. <laughs> not saying that. I'm just saying you can understand where it might end that way. I could also understand where verse 20 might be that too. Verse 20 kind of feels that way too. I can think of no better place to end the Bible than to say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. But there's one more verse. And that one verse tells us two things. One is, as I said, the whole book's a letter because if you look at it, it's just a salutation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. But it's a Holy Spirit-inspired salutation. I've depicted the, the not yet and the now, right? Guess what we don't need in the not yet? It's in the salutation, hint, hint. Grace. You don't need grace in heaven because it's done. The work of God is done. The grace that enables you to be forgiven and restored and sanctified and made perfectly in the image of Christ is poured out and lavished on us in this time, but we don't need it then. This Holy Spirit-inspired salutation extends the grace of the Lord Jesus to us. It wasn't all that long ago when we were in the book of Hebrews briefly in the summer that we recognize that the writer of Hebrews describes the very throne of God using these words. He says it's the throne of grace. What a profound way to describe the majesty of the throne of God. The book of Revelation takes quite a bit of time to unpack and tell us about in all majestic, beautiful imagery. But the writer of Hebrews also says, but it's the throne of grace. And why is that? So that we can boldly go to that throne for help in time of need. When is that time of need? Always in the now, right? Always, always, always in the now. Even when you don't think you need it, you need it because you're in the now. You need grace. 
grace is lavished upon you. And so my charge to you is receive that grace. Boldly go to the throne of grace in the now. These are the words. By the way, this is the last word that God gives to his people. These words were penned 2,000 years ago, and God says, that word, like the rest of my word, is eternally relevant. How do I give my people hope who are embattled? We speak of the church in this way. We say that the ch- we have the church militant, and we have the church in glory, right? So the church militant is those of us who are embattled in spiritual warfare. No spiritual warfare in heaven, right? We're done with that. Could you imagine if you had to spend the rest of eternity in spiritual warfare? I don't, know how, I don't care how well armed you are, that's not a hopeful picture. Right? One day you want to say, this is great, I'm glad I had this, but ugh, I'm glad that thing, thing's off of me so I can rejoice. Right? That's heaven. Now I need grace. Then I won't need grace. Approach to the throne of grace for time of help. Or help in time of need, I should say. And, and we are facing that. There's changes coming. That's what we announced at the beginning. Changes that mean challenges, challenges that we don't fully understand, things that are not clear. We need grace. And that grace is extended. And let me encourage you. Again, I am privileged to be the pastor here. It's a real blessing to me. I can't even tell you. And I'm excited because I am 100% convinced that God is doing something big in this little church. But in order for that to come to fruition, we need to be a people ultimately leaning on His grace. You know when churches get in trouble? When they lean on their own skills. When they lean on their own resources. Then they start to falter. Then they start to to think just a little too much of themselves. The church is the church because she operates in full dependence on the head of the church, which is Christ. And that is best described as the need for grace. And that grace is extended to us right here at the table where we come each week. And so let me pray, and we'll come to the table as we continue our time of response. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And this, today, we considered your final word. But here in the table, we have what we describe as your visible word. You, the Logos incarnate, the word incarnate is here. The word that took on flesh so you could live a perfectly sinless life and die a sinner's death on our behalf. Pour out your spirit upon us so that you could extend us the grace that we so desperately need. The access to the throne of grace that we so desperately need. So that we would have the hope of the gospel. The hope that brings us the certainty that one day through the mercy of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, through the atoning work that's accomplished on the cross and remembered here at this table that we too would be part of the bride unblemished presented spotless saying come along with the spirit with great joy and a long 
with the angels and festal gathering and the innumerable saints made right and all of the heavenly creatures, we too would cry out for all eternity, holy, 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 in joyful worship. And this was the cost of it, and you paid it in obedience to the Father for us. Thank you for this, Lord. We pray now and ask that by your Spirit you would take this cup and this bread and you would set them apart for a holy purpose, that they may become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.